Welcome to the Love First podcast, and I want to start with a story. It was supposed to be just the ride home from an early spring break vacation. We'd spent the weekend at a, uh, a cabin home provided by one of the members of our church. And so we got packed up in the van and all the family tucked away, and we were on our way home, and there was a, a long hill that we had to climb as we left the cabin. But it was early in the morning, and it was unusually cold, and the road was slick. And as we got to the very top of the hill, right before we crested it, our van lost traction. And it began to slip backward. And even as I accelerated, it didn't change the backward slippage. And as I started to brake, then the van began to slide. And we were on an incline. Both sides of the road meant that if we went off the road, we were going to roll over. And instinctively, I threw my arm over toward to brace my wife. My wife is telling the children to brace themselves. And for the next 15 seconds, which seemed like a lot longer than that, we just slid backwards, me tapping the brake, turning the wheel, and I had this premonition in my mind that it was just going to end in a terrible crash. Well, we got to the bottom of the hill, and it didn't end in a terrible crash. We were all breathing like we had just run a marathon. In fact, if I remember right, my wife was even crying, crying in relief that thought that inevitably we're going to crash. In this episode, we're going to talk about critical race theory, the church, and the gospel. And for a lot of you, you might be thinking, oh, great, there's no way this will end up well. We're going to crash. Well, thank you for joining us for the Love First podcast. Our whole role at the Love First podcast is to catalyze courageous conversations to revolutionize the way we love each other. So let's dive in to this important conversation. Love first, I know. think about this for a few moments. Why would I bring up this question about critical race theory and the church and the gospel? Well, you may have heard of critical race theory and you may not, but it's got a lot of traction over the last few months because people are really wanting to sort out, first of all, what are the issues we need to really, really be solving in our country related to negative race relations. But then we're also asking the question, what is the responsibility of the follower of Christ? And what is the responsibility of the church locally and the church at large? And our opinions on this are all over the map. So we begin to look for resources and some people begin to say, well, should we consider the impact of critical race theory? Other people, Christians, would say, if you bring up critical race theory, you have left the gospel. If your preacher brings up critical race theory or system, systemic racism, then you're going to the wrong church. You know, we see these things. Someone says, if you don't acknowledge systemic racism, you're not a, you're not a true Christian. All of this just floods our social media. So should we ignore it? Should we take sides or should we explore it? 
So first of all, it's not a new theory. Critical race theory, or CRT, has decades of research and conversation behind it, but it has become increasingly important as we try to understand what we're seeing happen right now in 2020 in our society and our interaction in the church. So what I'd like to start with is this. If we could boil critical race theory down, what I'd ask you to take a note of would be this. Critical race theory explores this question. Is there more going on in negative race-related interactions than just personal experience? Is there more going on in negative race-related interactions than just personal experience? Now, there's a lot of ways that we could explore this, but let's kind of start at a foundational idea of, well, what does it mean that we would try to develop a theory about something? That as we explore something, we'd even use the concept of theory. So critical theory itself is a much older study. As people would ask questions in critical theory about literature, critical theory about medical concerns, critical theory about climate, critical theory in engineering, all of these kinds of things, people have taken what would be called a critical theory. Now, don't think the word critical as like negative or demeaning or anything like that. Critical just means to take down and slice it into pieces so that you can begin to dissect what we're looking at. So in engineering, for instance, someone might ask the question, well, how do you build a skyscraper? And what is necessary to build the skyscraper? And what are the theories about engineering that would make for the successful building of a skyscraper in Dubai versus Tokyo? Tokyo versus Houston, Houston versus Montreal. See, so the theory of engineering begins to play a role in that. Think about music. My wife is a music teacher, and my wife had to take music theory classes. You might think to yourself, oh man, I thought we just had to take piano lessons or guitar lessons or drum lessons or, or trombone lessons. Well, yeah, of course. That's the personal part. But behind all of that, there is a theory of music. The same is true when we're addressing COVID-19. There is deep theory about epidemiology, about how pandemics function, interrelated with societal responses to pandemics. So we shouldn't be surprised that when you start addressing something as important as race relations, that people felt like that theory was important. So we shouldn't be thrown off by that. But now let's take another dive into this. And that is the question, should we try to understand all negative uh, uh, race-related interactions as just personal? Or should we try to see all negative race relations interactions as systemic? Or is there more going on? Is there some level of overlap that we should be exploring. How about another story? In 1992, uh, I was uh, blessed 
to speak at a campus ministry event in Louisiana for the students uh, that came from the campus ministries at Southern and at LSU. And I did this for years and it was just fantastic, but I was aging as I spoke there year after year after year. So when I was 31, I was still playing volleyball with these young college students and I fell and I had a terrific knee injury. I severed my ACL. I flew back to Indiana where I was living at the time, had surgery in Indianapolis to repair it, and the doctor that did the surgery happened to be the orthopedic surgeon for Indiana University's sports. So I had a lot of confidence in the doctor. Well, uh, Bo Jackson was having one of his surgeries at the time, and I thought to myself, man, if Bo can do it, I can do it. And so rehab started pretty well. After a few days, I went home from the hospital. But a few days after that, I began to have some pain. And I began to have a real difficulty, and I started having a fever. So I called the doctor, and the doctor asked me this question. The doctor said, okay, is your knee warm or hot? No. Is your knee red? No. Does your knee uniquely hurt? Is the pain located in your knee? And I thought, well, not really. It's kind of uncomfortable all over my body. So unfortunately, the doctor was at a conference in Chicago and was not as available. And by the end of the week, the pain was so intense that I actually called a neighbor who went to our church, who his wife came over, watched our kids, carried me out to the car, took me to the local hospital. They gave me morphine, did a couple of tests, loaded me up in an ambulance, put my wife in the front seat and drove with the lights and sirens all the way to Indianapolis and took us to St. Vincent's Hospital to do emergency surgery that very night. The doctor came in, took one look at it, said, we're going to have to do surgery. He said, um, we don't know the outcome. Well, we're going to try to save your leg. What? I mean, what, what are you saying? So I looked at this doctor and I said, hey, listen, man. I said, I'm a pastor. I've been with families that go through this. Don't tell my wife anything. You don't tell me. Don't tell me anything. You don't tell my wife. I want to hear it straight. And that's the last I knew. I woke up the next morning and it was a Sunday morning. And I'm in the hospital. I'm in ICU. I'm in the hospital. And I'm looking down over the bed. I see my knee there. And I keep on looking and I see, well, I've got a foot, so I still have my leg. And so I kind of drift back out. But then I hear a voice. And at the end of my bed is this doctor. And I look up at him and he says, my name is Dr. Christopher Bunce and I'm an infection specialist. And I thought, hmm, why are you here? And so I, I looked at him and said, you know, my name's Don, da, 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 da. He said, I talked to the doctor last night, and uh, I understand you want to hear it straight. Well, now he had my attention. And I said, yes, I, I do, I do. And he said, well, you have a systemic infection in your blood. And if we can't get a hold of it in the next 24 to 48 hours, you might not make it. Okay, I can remember thinking to myself, eh, I'm not sure I wanted it that straight. You could have sugarcoated that a little bit. But it just shocked me, and my mind immediately went to my wife and our small children, and what does all of this mean, and, and what's happening? Now, I want to stop for a moment and clarify something. 
It's not that I didn't understand the words he used. Like, that's not the first time, I was 31, it's not the first time I heard the word systemic, I knew what a system was, and it's not the first time I heard the word infection, I'd heard that word my whole life. So it's not that I didn't understand the words, I had just never had the words systemic infection put together and specifically applied to me. So what does that mean? What what does it mean that I have a systemic infection? How is that different than another infection? So I knew what it meant to have localized infection, right? To get a cut on my hand or something like that. And even my mom, when I was little, you know, well, you got to clean that out or it'll get infected, right? Or you get an infection like a paper kite, clean that out. They always said, it seemed like they always had hydrogen peroxide or methylate or something there that always burned. And apparently they thought the more it burned, the better it is at getting the infection out. I don't know. But what I did know is, well, that wasn't going to work this time. That treating the infection locally wasn't going to work this time. You see, that's what was behind my orthopedic surgeon's questions. Is your knee warm or hot? Is your knee red? Is the pain localized in your knee? What he was trying to identify through those questions is, do you have a localized infection or is something more going on? And something more was going on and it was difficult. I was on one of those gorilla antibiotics for the next 42 days. I lost 43 pounds. It took me months to recover from that systemic infection. So see, when we think about words like systemic racism, it's not like we haven't heard those vocabulary words before. We know what systemic means. We have a feel for what racism means. We've grown a lot and kind of grasping what racism means. But when we put the two words together, now we're suggesting, well, maybe there's something else going on. Let's consider another way to think about this idea of personal interactions and systemic concerns. When you think about how we would explore what happened in Nazi Germany, what happened in the Holocaust, would we basically explain it as something like this? Adolf Hitler had some very bad personal feelings toward Jews and very bad personal relationship interactions with some Jewish people. And that kind of explains the Holocaust. Or would we say, well, if you've read his writings, what I said first is true. He had very personal negative attitudes toward Jewish people, not just personally, but as a people group. But what followed wasn't Hitler's negative personal interactions with Jews. What followed was a systemic approach called the final solution to the extermination of the Jewish people. So there was both personal engagement and systemic engagement. 
Another question would be, how would we explore apartheid in South Africa? Would we suggest that apartheid was just like negative interactions between the descendants of European immigrants who uh, colonized in South Africa and, and negative interactions between them and people that descended from indigenous people, would we just say that it's kind of like a, I don't know, just a bad neighbor interaction, like I just don't like my neighbor? Or was there more to it? Did it develop into like laws and policies that impacted banking and voting and uh, freedoms and liberties? Well, that's more than just, I don't like the person that lives next door to me. So when we think about critical race theory, remember the ultimate question. Is there more going on in negative race-related interactions than just a personal experience? Now, if we take this one step further then, we could even ask, well then, how would we kind of think about like the, the slave trade and the slave system in early American history? How would we kind of process that? Would we just think to ourselves that there was some guy in Europe that owned a boat and, you know, he was kind of looking for a way to make a quick buck. So he went to the coast of Africa and he kidnapped a few people off the coast and then he floated across the ocean hoping he could find a buyer. And he got there, and sure enough, he had a farmer that, you know, kind of needed a few hands but didn't want to pay him. And so he bought the slaves, and uh, that's kind of how we would describe the slave trade. Well, no, that's why we call it a slave trade. See, because what we all know is that would be insufficient to explain the slave trade or the practice of slavery. It's not just that a few people had negative interactions that ended up in the enslavement of a person through personal interaction. We recognize that a whole system of living developed around that, and that system of living that developed around slavery kept mutating throughout the course of uh, uh, world history since that time. So what, what you think about is, some of the things we talk about with Jim Crow laws, some of the issues that were addressed in the civil rights movement are actually the mutating descendants of the system of slavery. So one of the things we recognize is you could actually have a person of color and a person of European descent who between the two of them have a fantastic relationship. And it might have come through any number of interactions. They might have grown up together. They might have done athletics together. They might have served in the military together. They might have worked together. They might have gone to school together, right? So there's all these potentials for all these really positive personal interactions. But the positive personal interactions have not been enough to solve some of these other very significant problems. So what we would kind of say is, I too kind of wonder, is there more going on than just personal interaction? One of the quotes that is often brought up in relating to segregation and race-related problems in regard to the church uh, comes from Martin Luther King Jr. And he shared this quote or this statement that the 11 o'clock hour on Sunday morning 
is the most segregated hour in America. If you do a little research on that, he actually gave that quote several times. And the first time it's recorded, it wasn't an actually a part of the speech he was giving. It was in the Q&A afterward. And there's even a little bit more to it. He says, see, if the church would have been doing what it needed to be doing all along, we probably wouldn't be in the situation we're in. See, King had this great belief that the church was at the center of God's solution for the problems of the world. But I want you to hear his thinking. In his mind, the church, local and global, had it been functioning as a system, and I mean that in the best way, if the church had been functioning as a system in the way it should have been functioning, then it would have directly impacted how society was experiencing race relations. So what I'd like us to consider is, if the church could solve race relations just by, you know, good personal experiences, would we not have already done it? I mean, would not the last four plus centuries on this continent really kind of been enough time for the church to really gain the traction it needed to gain and for our neighborhoods to look that way and, and, and all of the policy making to kind of see equity at every level? If it was only personal, would that not be enough? Now, what we recognize is that we have a tendency, though, when we discuss personal race relations and the impact of those personal experiences or discuss systemic race problems, that we have a tendency to divide and drift into two camps and then prop one or the other up in opposition to the other as the one that explains the problem. So one of the things we got to start with is this. If I kind of choose one camp against the other, that the whole explanation is rooted in personal interactions or the whole explanation is rooted in systemic interactions and I weaponize one base against the other, then ultimately what happens is we shut down productive conversation. We can no longer stay on point to explore the problem well because now we're so distracted by debating the two camps. So let's recognize a truth. Let's recognize the truth about my example of my knee infection. Did the infection start in the knee? Yes. But was it localized in the knee? No, it was systemic. So the infection in the knee was connected to the systemic infection in my blood, and the systemic infection in my blood was connected to the knee. Let's look at Hitler. Was Hitler's personal problem related to the Holocaust? Of course. Was the Holocaust related to Hitler's personal problem? Of course. So you don't separate those into opposing camps to decide which one explains the Holocaust because they're both essential to explaining it, just like personal and systemic are essential to understanding apartheid and essential to understanding the slave trade and essential to understanding negative race relations today. So let's remember this. The personal experience is always related to systemic experience. And systemic experience 
is always related to personal experience. So if someone says, you know, well, anyone that kind of preaches the system idea isn't preaching the truth, that preacher would be equally wrong to say anyone who denies the system has nothing to offer. They would be equally wrong because what they would both be doing is canceling the discussion that leads to the outcomes we so desperately need. Can we see this in Scripture? Let's go to Luke 7 and start in verse 18, and let's see if we can't find the wisdom from God to understand these connections between personal experience and the system, between the system and personal experience. John, that's John the Baptist, John's disciples told him about all the things Jesus was doing. Calling two of them, John sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Well, when the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. Now, for the sake of our discussion, circle that last one. Gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to him, to John, what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear and the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. So after John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. And this is what Jesus said to the crowd. You ready? So what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear, fine, wear expensive clothing and indulge in luxury are in palaces. Third time, what did you go out to see? A prophet? Oh, yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you that among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Well, all the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purposes for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. Jesus went on to say, To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? Well, they're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other, We played the pipe for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a dirge but you didn't cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. 
The Son of Man came, eating and drinking, and you say, Well, he is a glutton and a drunkard, and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her children. John the Baptist says to his followers, Go to Jesus and get some clarification. Is what I'm seeing in Jesus the clarification that he is who he says he is and that he's the one we should expect? And Jesus says to the disciples of John, you go back and tell John what you have seen and heard. But then Jesus turns to the people standing there and says, let me ask you this question. When you came out here to, to, to see John, What'd you come out to see? Now, that's very important wording because Jesus says, when you left your home, what did you leave with? What was your anticipation? What was your expectation? What did you come out to see? Because when you got out here, then there was a disconnect, a cognitive dissonance between what you thought you were going to see and what you actually saw. So you might have thought, well, you know, we're going to go out there and we're going to see a guy in fine clothing. We show up, we see some guy dressed in burlap. You thought you were going to see some guy that was, you know, eating fine food. You come out here and you see a guy that's eating bugs. <laughs> Jesus says, so what did you come out to see? Three times he says, what did you come out to see? So some of you had this expectation of John. And when you got out here and you saw what John was like, you were like, nah, nah, it's all right. John said, you need to be baptized to prepare yourself for the Messiah. That's all right. You didn't turn out to be all that. But some people left and wondered, I wonder if he's a prophet. And when they got out there, what John looked like, what he wore, what he, what he ate, had no impact. Because they didn't go out to see those things. They went out there with the anticipation that he would be a prophetic voice. And he was. And when they told them that they needed to repent and believe and that they needed to turn from their sins and they needed to be baptized, they did it. So those people, when they heard what Jesus said about John, the Bible says they acknowledged that the ways of God are right. That sure, that guy didn't look like what we expected. That guy didn't talk like we expected or he didn't eat like we expected. But it turned out that he was the prophet we were looking for. And when he spoke the words of God, we listened and we followed. And we didn't really care what the rest of it looked like. But the people that rejected it because they had another anticipation. You got to look a certain way. You got to talk a certain way. You got to eat a certain way. And they got out there and they were unimpressed with the ways of John. Then they said to themselves, now nah, that's all right. Jesus said, let me tell you what that generation is like. It's like people that whoever plays the tune, that's how they respond. So if somebody says, hey, man, let's play a happy song. All right, I'll dance along. Hey, man, we're playing a sad song. Okay, it's time to be sad. What Jesus says in reality is you are like people who don't think critically about anything. You don't even stop and ask yourself, why are they playing music at all? And why are they choosing happy songs this time and sad songs that time? 
You're not even asking that question. It's just whoever plays the music gets you to dance. Jesus says that will keep you from hearing the voice of God. So when someone says, you shouldn't have been playing happy music. If anybody plays happy music, that means you shouldn't be listening. You shouldn't be playing sad music. If anybody plays sad music, you shouldn't be listening. Jesus said, stop doing it that way. Listen for the voice of God. And when you do, wisdom will appear in how you respond to these questions. So can we go back and think through this one last time? So when we're trying to do something to improve how we interact with the people around us, when we're taking seriously the damaged relationships in the history of our nation that are rooted in race specifically, but in many other ways. When we want to take seriously the abuse of children, the abuse of women, when we want to take seriously sexism and racism and classism, when we really want to take that serious, are we sure we want to get distracted by, well, uh, is, is it all system or is it all personal? Or do we just want us to, to clear the table and say, bring the resources that will help us get this done? What does the Lord require of you? It wasn't Micah that asked that question, Micah the prophet. God supplied the question. God said to Micah, here's the question. What does the Lord require? What the Lord requires is justice, mercy, and humility. Jesus said in Matthew 23 to these same opponents, the Pharisees, you do understand that there's priorities in the kingdom, and the top priority, Matthew 23, 23, is what? Justice justice, mercy, and faithfulness. He said, if you really want to be a part of what I want you to be doing, doing something to bring justice and mercy and faithfulness to the world, stop getting distracted by those who play a tune to get you to dance when you're not even sure why they've chosen that tune or why you're submitting to it. You see, we have the gift of the Holy Spirit to teach us how to think more comprehensively than that. So let's give a couple of suggestions as we close this episode out. Number one, no theory can bring enough to the table that it eclipses the wisdom of God. There's no theory that can do that. There's no theory about science that is greater than the knowledge of the Creator. There is no theory of engineering that is greater than the one that created the iron ore in the first place. There's no theory of music that is greater than the music of the heavens. So no theory ever eclipses the wisdom of God. Number two, no theory can carry the weight of the solution. No single theory can carry the weight of the solution. 
So if you look at medicine, there are multiple theories that lead to solutions that help people. If you look at engineering, there are multiple theories that have led to the solution of safer and safer building codes. If you look at race relations, there are multiple theories that help us get to the right solution. So no single theory is enough to carry the weight that the solution requires. And finally, what should be the attitude of a believer? Our attitude should be that we will do whatever it takes. We will carry our cross no matter how far to fulfill the call of God, to share the good news with the world, the good news of justice and mercy and faithfulness and the love that God has for everyone. We will give anything to get that done. The apostle Paul says, listen, I'm not only ready to be bound, I'm ready to die to share a gospel like that. Paul says, I become all things, all people to share a gospel like that. Should the world expect anything less from us? Oh, I thought of it this way since we're still dealing with COVID. Don't you wish COVID would get as tired of us as we are of it? My goodness, I'm ready for COVID to make an exit. But it hasn't made its exit yet. So let me ask you this question. Would we rather that, you know, scientists, epidemiologists, researchers, the medical community would kind of separate into warring camps and opposing theories and that they'd kind of like not share their research and let pride and hubris kind of build up to where the whole thing becomes a debate about how to make a vaccine? Or would we want them to let go of their pride, let go of their arrogance, collaborate together and bring everything to the table that will help us get to a solution, even if part if they bring something that's part right and part wrong, but we can if we can harvest off of it the part that's right. Wouldn't we rather see that level of collaboration and get to a vaccine? I think we would all agree, yes. Would we not be astounded if we found out that somehow the reticence to come to a vaccine wasn't a research issue, it was a profit issue. People weren't going to release it until they could make the most money while, money while people are dying? We would be infuriated, and rightly so. so. Should not the world be able to expect of the people of God that we would seek every resource that can help us live into the fullness of the gospel, every resource that helps us live into justice, mercy, and faithfulness, every resource, resource that will increase our understanding of how these race relationships occur in negative ways so that they can be transformed into beloved interactions, which creates a beloved community. Would we expect any thing less than the followers of Jesus. You see, when I look at critical race theory, when I look at the questions surrounding race relations, I just kind of ask myself, Don, what'd you go out to see? If I look into a theory that has to do with race relations, and I'm actually looking to pick it apart, that's going to come out in what I say and what I do.
And you know what's really sad about that? There might be key resources within that theory that really could have helped us fulfill the mission of God. Why would I want, why would I not want those tools in my toolbox, right? But if I look at it through personal experience and I find myself kind of like, like a prosecutor pressing people to make their case when they're trying to pour out the pain of their personal experience, is that really what we see in the example of Jesus? You see, in what we say and what we do, people will either experience the wisdom of God or the wisdom of the world. And we have an opportunity right now to express to the world that the ways of God are right. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Love First Podcast. And we would ask you to like, subscribe, and share. And tune in next week for part two of our conversation about critical race theory, the church, and the gospel. Love first, I know.